Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Steve Wallen. I'm the executive pastor here at Genesis Church. And before we get going this morning, I just want to make you aware of one other thing that's been happening over the past week here at Genesis. And if you're a, a parent of a student or if you serve in our Gen- Genesis student ministries, you already know this. But I just wanted to let you know that Connor Chalfant, who Connor was our student ministries coordinator over the past eight months, uh, Connor is no longer part of Genesis staff. And it's a, it was a mutual decision between the church and Connor. This was a result of conversation we've had over the past several months. Uh, I just want to let you know, if you're a parent or if you're a student, that we are still committed to Genesis Student Ministries. And in fact, uh, we had a great week with students. We had uh, nine students across our two campuses that just got back from Haiti last night, late last night, because I was at the airport to pick one of them up. Um, we had 25 students, middle school students go to Mix this week. Uh, which is the most we've ever taken. And so the Lord is doing some really cool stuff in student ministries here at Genesis Church. We believe that God has the right person uh, for the job next here at Genesis. He's already got that person in mind, and in his time, he's going to reveal that to us. And we believe that God has something great for Connor, too. And so um, if, if you have been thinking about serving in student ministries, uh, now would be a great time to let yourself be known. We'd love to have you. Uh, we've got the next few weeks covered. Jerry's going to be there tonight. I'm going to be there in a couple weeks. And um, I just wanted to let you know that, um, and uh, let's just take a moment and pray, and then we'll move on. All right, Heavenly Father, I believe that. I believe you've got the right person in mind for the job. Um, Lord, I believe that you are faithful to continue the work that you've began. And so I just pray that right now in the name of Jesus. I pray uh, for Connor. Um, I pray that you would guide him and direct him in his next stage of life. And Lord, would you help us as we uh, help, want to help students find their way back to God. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible there uh, with you, there should be one of these on the floor around you. Uh, Colossians 2 is found on page 822 of this Bible right here. I was shopping at uh, Walmart this week, and I found these watermelon Oreos. Does that sound disgusting to you? I, I looked at that, and I thought, that's awful. And so I did some research this week. You ever wonder what pastors do during the week? Um, <laughs> We research obsolete Oreo flavors. But, but I found out this isn't the first time they've come up with weird flavors. Like uh, there was this one before, um, banana split Oreos. This is a feat of Oreo engineering. It's one white cookie, one chocolate cookie, and two different flavors of frosting. I'm not quite sure um, who graduated with their master's degree from Purdue and then designed the banana split Oreo. But somebody um, is going to talk about what that means. Uh, or this one, the, the ice cream Oreos. It's like, it, but it's, Ice cream is great, right? But this is rainbow sherbet. So it's like, eh, all the delicious sour flavor of sherbet without the disadvantage of being cool and refreshing. I don't know. Um, and so there's that. Okay, okay, or hear me out. How about this? How about Oreo handy snacks? It's just like an Oreo, but you have to build it yourself. Huh? Okay, well, if you don't like any of those, just rest assured that fall is coming and you'll be able to get your pumpkin spice Oreos, right? See, here's the problem. Oreos are already perfect, right? They're already perfect. They, they, they're a great size. They have just the right cookie to icing ratio. And I'm talking about traditional Oreos. Now, don't come at me with that double stuff garbage that you guys eat. You might as well brush your teeth with cake frosting, all right? But that's a secondary issue, right? So we can be unified in the essentials and we can disagree on the uh, non-essentials. I can still love you. You can still be a part of our fellowship here. That's okay if you like double stuff Oreos. But here's what I realized. When you take something that's already perfect and try to add something to it to make it better, it usually ends up making it worse, doesn't it? 
And if you're not careful, you can completely stray away from what it was meant to be in the first place. And that's what we see happening in the church in Colossae, in the book of Colossians. So last week we kicked off this series. We're spending four weeks studying the, uh, the four chapters in the book of Colossians. And I just wanted to remind you that there are reading guides available. These are outside uh, on the tables where the host team is. Uh, there's a reading guide here for this series and you can read Colossians along with us. We wanna be rooted in his word. And one of the ways we do that is to read along together uh, in the book of Colossians. Uh, so check that out if you haven't done that already. Uh, Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a place called Colossae. We talked a little bit about the history of Colossae last week. If you missed that, uh, check out the podcast on that. And it's interesting that even though the book was written just 25 or 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, that church had already started to stray some, from some of the basic tenets of their faith. And so we titled this series Uncompromised because as we saw last week, that's the kind of faith that Paul is encouraging the church to lead. Uh, he, he, he viewed even the smallest compromise in their faith as a really big deal. And so last week we saw in chapter one that Jesus was first. Uh, Jesus having an uncompromised faith means that Jesus is first in your life. And so Paul uses the start of this letter uh, to declare the absolute supremacy of Christ, that he says he's the head of the church, uh, he's the head of every believer, and that we follow him because he's first. And so Paul says in chapter one, says he's the one we proclaim, teaching everyone so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul's talking about wanting to grow up in our faith. He's pointing to the work of making disciples. And we saw last week that that was the mission. That's to be the mission of every Christian, to make more and better disciples of Jesus. And so as we continue this morning, what we're gonna see is that Paul's gonna build on the supremacy in Christ in order to correct some specific compromises that are finding their way into the faith of the Colossians, into the believers' hearts and minds. So we're going to start in Colossians 2, verse 6. So if you have your Bible open, uh, if not, they'll be here on the side screens. It says this, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness here. I love how Paul goes about this. Uh, he starts by reminding them of something they already know. You know, English author Samuel Johnson once said that people need to be reminded more than they need to be taught. I know that's true of me. It's certainly true of my kids. Uh, but he, 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 that's what he does. He reminds them, hey, remember how you received Jesus. Remember what you were taught. Remember, uh, I want you to continue to live your lives according to that. Don't, don't add things. Don't take things away. Don't do anything to mess up your faith. But just as you received Christ, just as you were taught, continue living in him like that. Why is that important? Well, look at verse 8. Verse eight says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, this is a really big verse. We're gonna spend a lot of time on this verse this morning because Paul isn't saying, hey, just in case this happens. All right, here's what he says. Clearly, there are some in the church who are basing their faith on something other than Christ, that their religion was not the Christian religion. It was based on something else. And they're teaching others to do themselves. And so there's these false teachers in the church. And Paul's saying, don't buy it. Don't be captivated by their words because they're teaching that Christ himself is not sufficient, that he's not enough. And Paul says, and I've already told you that he is enough. You already knew that. I'm just reminding you of that. Now, what are these false teachers calling people to? Well, we can see four things in this chapter uh, that give us some context. First, Paul mentions deceptive philosophy. 
there was, uh, the, they believed that there was some teaching beyond the simple truth preached by Jesus that you had to understand and adhere to in order to be holy, to be religious, to be right with God. And it was this truth that was far too difficult for regular people to understand. Like only really smart intellectual types could know it and teach it. And so uh, you should look up to us because we really understand what's going on here. We know something you don't. Paul said, don't, don't be captivated by that. Don't be deceived by that. Don't be deceived when people come and tell you something from Scripture that's not in Scripture. And so let me tell you about one deceptive philosophy in the church today. It's what some people would call the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that God loves you, and therefore he wants you to be rich. Like he wants you to be financially successful. When when this is the gospel we follow, it means if there's financial reward in it, it must be from God. And if we have a financial issue, a problem, it means that it's because of our faith, right? If we're not successful, it must not be from God. Friends, that is not the gospel at all, right? God loves you. Yes, he loves you. Yes, God cares for you. But that love and care does not mean he wants you to make you rich on this earth. In fact, God's love for you is an eternal love, and he is far, far more interested in preparing you for heaven than he is in making you comfortable now. I've heard it said this way, God cares more about your character than your comfort. Now, I want you to hear me say this. This does not mean that God doesn't like money. It doesn't mean that God doesn't, uh, is gonna be mad if you get rich. It doesn't mean that God hates you if you have a lot of money. That's not what I'm saying. It just means that there are so many things about you. There are so many more things about you that God wants you to find your identity in besides where you live or what you drive or where you spend your summers. Don't be deceived by a message that's not from the Lord. So second, Paul talks about human tradition. This is likely pointing to the philosophy of Gnosticism. The Gnostics were known for claiming that they had special teachings that nobody else knew about, that there was something that was uh, told by the word of mouth of Jesus, sometimes to Mary, sometimes to Matthew, sometimes to Peter, and they were things that were never told to the church. And so if you really want to know what the Bible has to say about this, you really need to come see me because I've got the inside edge, right? They were a chosen few people, but Paul points out this teaching is purely human, it's not divine, that there's human teachings that have infiltrated their way into the church. William Barclay, uh, who's a great scholar and theologian, points out in his commentary, no teaching can be a Christian teaching when it's at variance with the basic truths of Scripture. And so if I were to think about uh, human teachings, human traditions, which falls into this category for us today in the church, I think the one that most frequently comes up is the matter of politics. Uh, Look, I think it's important to follow what's happening in our country. Uh, It's important to vote. In fact, it's our duty. It's our duty to vote. It's our duty to help choose leaders. Uh, It's great. It's important to have a political opinion. But what happens so often in the church is we get our politics and our religion mixed up, so tangled up so that it becomes impossible to tell where one starts and the other begins. And when you mix religion and politics, you get politics. What would happen? If you took every political statement made by every politician and compared it to the words of Jesus, I'm guessing that even the men and women that are on your side miss. I got to tell you that when Jesus returns, he'll be coming on the clouds, but it won't be riding an Air Force One. And I want to be clear that there are people on both sides of the political spectrum that get this wrong, liberals and conservatives. We can be so blinded by our political stance that we just assume that God is on our side, but a God who always agrees with us is one that only we could have created. So please let Jesus inform your politics. Yes and amen. But don't let your politics inform your view of Jesus. Man, am I stepping on some toes this morning or what? Uh, 
Uh, third, third thing that's happening in the church in Colossae, you may have noticed the phrase elemental, elemental spiritual forces. And there's some different views about what the meaning is here, but really in, in my research, the best understanding seems to be tied to some special knowledge that could be gained through astrology. All right, astrology is the, the study of the stars and how they affect life on earth. Not astronomy. Astronomy's fine if you're an astronomer. Uh, great. Study, keep studying the stars. Study God's creation. That's different. Uh, astrology is looking to the stars for guidance. And unfortunately, there are still people today who practice this, that wear zodiac charms and badges and read uh, online articles to see what the stars have for them today. But this uh, practice was so pervasive in the first century, that specifically in Roman culture, that we know some of Rome's great leaders like uh, Julius Caesar and Augustus and Tiberius, they wouldn't make any significant decision without first consulting the stars. But Paul makes it clear, astrology is false teaching. In fact, he points to the real power behind astrology and it's de- demonic in nature. The spiritual force behind it is not holy or good. And I want to say, if you, if you take part in these things, stop. I don't know how to say it, quit it. It's not from God. I think more frequently in the church, uh, or in, in our culture at least, where this usually manifests itself is in phrases that seem pretty harmless. Uh, things like, wow, the weather gods really shined on us today, didn't they? Or uh, let, let's get it right. There, is no, there are no weather gods. There is a weather god, and it's not Chris Hemsworth, okay? <laughs> I mean, the god of the universe, the one that has storehouses of snow, the one that tells the rain where to go, that's the god that you can thank for the weather or blame for the weather if you want to do that. Or I'll hear a phrase like this, you know, I just believe that the universe has something better for me. Let me be honest with you. The universe has nothing for you. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning for that encouraging word? <laughs> But here's why. The universe is just a creation, just like you're a creation. The person who has something better for you is the creator. Don't go to the universe. Don't go to creation looking for something better. Go to the creator because he loves you and he has a plan for you and a purpose for you that is so much better promise than waiting for the universe to deliver on something that it can't, it doesn't have the power to give you. And God, who created you, is able to provide exceedingly and abundantly more than all you could ask or imagine. So go to him. All right, there seems to be a fourth thing happening here in the church too. So for just a moment, let's skip ahead to verse 16. Colossians 2.16 says this, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul says, hey, you know all those rules you were taught to follow all your life so that you could have a relationship with God? be nice and clean your room and all those things. He said, all those Old Testament laws and practice that Paul alluded to here, he said, they're really, we're just pointing to Jesus all along. Like those were the things that were preparing us for this savior. So why continue with the shadow when we now have the reality? But the shadow is what the teachers, the false teachers were holding people to. So this church in Colossae, there seems to be this blend of humanism and Judaism and Gnosticism and astrology being added to the gospel of Jesus. This is a messed up church full of messed up people. And so I am so glad that we're beyond that now, that we've got that all figured out, right? We don't deal with those kind of things in the church anymore. No, that's what the church is for. It's a place for messed up people to come and learn the true gospel and to grow together in love. But what does Paul say about these false teachers? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, this is really strong language. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the word syllogogeion. 
And that word would have been a stark picture for Paul's audience because it's the word that was used for a slave dealer carrying away the people of a conquered nation. That's how Paul views these false teachings in the church. It's the language of slavery. It's human trafficking. Like these people are taking people hostage and carrying them away to this false teaching. And so for Paul, it was tragic. Like men and women who had been ransomed and redeemed and liberated from their bondage to sin and death could now submit themselves to a new and equally devastating false gospel. A gospel that teaches that Christ isn't enough. That you have to work hard to be a real Christian. That you have to accomplish some things for God to love you and accept you. Let's get back to verse nine. Paul says this, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Pause. Who is Jesus? Paul says he's God in the flesh, fully God, yet fully man, the fullness of deity in human flesh. And then he says this, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Now, what does that mean? It means that when I submit my life to Jesus, that his righteousness is imputed to me. It's given to me, that that we are clothed in Christ, that, that when God sees me now, he no longer sees my sin, he sees Christ's perfection. There's nothing else that needs to be done for me to be made right with God. That was finished on the cross through Christ's perfect life, through his sacrificial death and his life giving resurrection. And when you are in Christ, you are brought to fullness and you are given everything you need. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Paul continues, verse 11. He says, in him, you were also circumcised, ouch, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul reminds them that circumcision was the old way of identifying with God, but there's a new way. And that new way is through baptism in Christ. In baptism, you're symbolically put to death in the water and raised to life in Christ the way that Jesus was raised to new life. By the way, if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized yet, you need to do that. What's stopping you from doing that? Uh, We have our next uh, baptism service coming up at the end of September. Uh, it'll be in part of our fall series. And uh, I, if you haven't been baptized yet, you should sign up today. Go to the website. I don't know if it's out on the website yet, actually. Come see me. We'll talk about getting you baptized. If that's not soon enough for you, the end of baptism or the end of September, uh, we will go to Morse Lake and we'll dunk you, whatever. We'll, we'll make it happen, all right? Now, I love this. Let's look at what Paul says next. Verse 13. He says, when you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now remember, circumcision just means the way that we identify with God. So Paul is saying, back before you identified yourself with God, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And by the way, what Paul is alluding to here would have, again, been a vivid picture for the people living in the Roman Empire in this audience right now. Uh, The word Paul uses here that is translated as disarmed in the NIV is better translated as stripped. It's the word used for stripping the weapons and the armor away from a defeated enemy. 
And Rome had this practice of when it would defeat a culture, it would march its enemies through the streets after a victory. And it, they would have their army, their, their kings and leaders go first, and then their army go second. And then the, the army that lost, that was defeated, would go in the back and they would be stripped of all their weapons and armor. And that's the word that's used here when, when Paul says disarm the powers and authorities. It's the word used for stripping the weapons and armor away from a defeated enemy. Paul says, that's what Jesus did to the powers of evil. That, that my enemy and yours, did you know you have an enemy? You have a very, very real enemy, the evil one that wants to steal and kill and destroy. That that enemy has been defeated, that he's been stripped of power. Death was defeated on the cross and his funeral was held at an empty tomb. So let me just ask you, when you think about what Christ has done for you on the cross, what could you possibly add to that? What would make that more powerful? What would make that more meaningful? What would make that more fulfilling? Here's what I want you to see. If you look back through verses 13 through 15, there's a lot of action words in there. And all those actions are things that were performed by God. Paul says, you were dead in your sin. Hey, being dead is not an action. I don't know if you know that. He said, you were dead in your sin. God made you alive. You stood condemned. God forgave you. You owed a debt you could never repay. God canceled the debt. He paid it in full. He nailed it to the cross and he disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them. What are you gonna add to that? Nothing. Listen, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In Christ, you have all you need. I just wanna go back to one other Thing here in verse 14, because there's something that really stood out to me this week. Um, and, and so I, I did a little research. Colossians 2.14 says, Jesus, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, I didn't go to church my whole life, but for the few years I did go to church in middle school, we used the King James Bible. And so there was something familiar to me about this verse. So I went back and looked at the King James verse 14, and here's what it says blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And this phrase would have spoken immediately to the people who read this letter because paper in those days for writing letters um, would have been very hard to come by and very expensive. They would either use uh, parchment or papyrus, uh, which is from the pith of the bulrush plant, kind of hard to come by and make, or they would have used vellum, which is from animal skins. And either way, it was expensive and hard to come by. And so often what would happen was someone would write a letter or a note and it would be sent to the person. And then to respond, they would have to wipe the ink off the page and send another letter back. To make it ready to write on, you would have to completely and totally blot out all of the ink until it was completely clean and new and ready to be written on again. That word blotting out or canceling the charge is the word that they would have used to describe wiping the old words off the paper till it was completely clean as if it had never been there before. And so Paul compares what Jesus did for us to that, that he blots out our old record. He completely wipes it away. And so maybe you're here today and you're really struggling because of some of those same tendencies that the Colossians struggled with and we're plagued with in the past. You've believed a lie. You've worshiped Jesus and something else. 
Or, or maybe your life has been defined by something that you don't want it to be defined by anymore. There's a relationship that's been broken or a habit that has haunted you or a pattern of sin you haven't been able to get rid of. Maybe you've struggled with guilt or shame over something that you've done in the past or over something that was done to you. I'm here to tell you, you don't have to deal with that anymore. In Christ, those words are blotted out. They are wiped completely clean as if they never existed. And you can start today with a fresh sheet of paper. That may mean that today is the day you recommit your life to Christ. Maybe at some point in the past, you, you made that commitment. And yeah, you come to church and yeah, you'd call yourself a Christian, but really he hasn't been first in your life. Today, you can make that decision to acknowledge Jesus because you went first. I want you to be first in my life. Nothing in my life will come before you anymore. Or maybe for the first time today, you need to recognize Jesus as Lord of your life. You've never made that decision before. You can put your trust in him and know that he is all you need. His grace is sufficient for you. He is more than enough. Let's pray together. Father, I admit I'm sometimes guilty of building my life on Jesus and something else. I know sometimes I get into the mindset that Christ isn't enough, that, that I need more, that there must be something else. It's, it's too simple. The gospel's too easy. It's too simple. There, there must be a part for me to play. There must be something I have to do. But God, I'm, I'm convicted when I read that passage and I see that in the gospel, all of the action comes from you. I was dead in my sin and you brought me back to life. I was living apart from you and you pursued me. Lord, you pursued us. I'm thankful for that, God. I don't have anything to add to that. There's nothing I could do to make that better. And if I try, I'm just gonna make it worse. So Lord, we just corporately today, we confess there have been times where we've tried to make your gospel more complicated than it needs to be. And I pray that you, we repent of that. I pray that you would forgive us of that. And Lord, help us to see, help us to understand and know that in Christ, we have everything we need, that he is enough for anything we need. I pray these things in the name of Jesus.